Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. We're back from Sundance and have finally had a chance to catch our breath and regroup in LA. We were so inspired by the festival this year and by all the films that we saw. Enjoy our Sundance Roundup with a film critic, production designer, and virtual reality producers. First up, we have an interview with our favorite film critic, Beyondra July, for her festival hot takes and in-depth thoughts on her favorite films. We had the chance to watch some films with her during the festival and really loved hearing her takeaways. Here it is. Okay. Okay. We are back from Sundance chatting with Beyondria July, who's been on our podcast several times. And she's here with us today to give us a little Sundance roundup. Yeah, she's a film critic with uh, many outlets, but at Sundance, she was covering many films for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, but yeah, we wanted to kind of get your sense of the festival, any... Um, any favorite films to, to start us off? Anything that really caught your attention and made you excited for the coming season of film? Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, so it was. I thought it was a great festival. Um, probably the most polarizing film there might have been Bad Hair. Um, I actually really loved it. Um, I wasn't sure because I don't typically gravitate towards horror, but... Um, it sort of reminded me a little bit of like get out, um, in terms of like applying, you know, social issues to horror, but also like really digging into like, um, the meaning of like black hair, um, which I thought was fascinating. Cause that's like a topic that's like endless, it could be endlessly explored, but it's only beginning to be touched. I've seen as I've seen, but, um, I thought it was great. It was like campy and, was campy horror so it wasn't like you know gonna give me nightmares but it was also kind of a critique of like um processed hair and the ways that black women do their hair so that it looks european um which i think is very touchy in the community so there'll be some interesting debates about that i also really like minari i think that won um like the festival's top prize right yeah um lee isaac chung and um I loved it. my favorite thing. That was definitely my favorite Q&A of the festival because, as you know, there's a little boy in it who's like, I think he's like seven now, but when they shot it, he was like five years old or something. And he's so adorable. And he was there and he was wearing like a full on cowboy suit. <laughs> and they asked him how he prepared. And he was like, my sister does musicals. So I watched some of those videos. <laughs> but he's like really... Um, I like really love child when child actors get like a meaty role, you know, and they're not just like window dressing. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of shows and movies do that with child actors and this movie definitely doesn't. Um, he also has an older sister who does a great job as well. Yeah, um, there were like a lot of movies that I enjoyed. I guess probably the ones that blew me away the most were On the Record and Time. Um, on the record was the documentary from Kirby Zick, 
and no Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Um, and it was about uh, accusers of Russell Simmons for sexual misconduct. And I thought it was a great film. I mean, they've done all their films they're known for have been about sexual assault in different avenues of society. They did one about the armed forces, one about college campuses, um, and then this one. And so they know a lot about the subject and you could really feel like there's sort of adeptness in handling material like that in the film. Plus it was just, um, it was just a great example of like the cost of sexual misconduct in the lives and careers of women and how it hurts not only them, but all of us in terms of the lost work that they could have done if they weren't forced out of their jobs. Um, so I highly recommend it. And it got, you know, it got dropped by um, a certain media mogul and then, um, (laughs) it did now get picked up by, um, HBO, um, their new streaming oh, service. HBO Max? Yes, I think so. Hmm. I Double check me on that, but I think it got picked up by them. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm really happy to see that, and I just can't wait to see what um, people say about it and discussions and all of that. Um, Time is a documentary by this filmmaker named Garrett Bradley, and um, she's out of New Orleans, um, although Amy Adrian told me they were classmates at UCLA film school. Oh, um, yeah. And, um, very small worlds. And, um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was just like so innovative. I'd never seen a documentary like that because the subject of the film was about this family where the father was, um, excessively sentenced to like this 90 year prison sentence for, um, sort of a petty robbery that he was involved in and um you know he didn't no one died or anything like that of course robbery is bad but it was like a you know a undue sentence and so his wife took all these home videos of her and their six sons um and so we really literally get to see them grow up in the whole documentary and we get to see the father reunited with them finally after like 20 years in jail um in prison and um it's just really moving and it's in black and white it has this like eerie kind of like vaudevillian score that like ties it all together really well it's just so interesting like and it's very moving like everyone was crying at the premiere um I was crying I you know it just was like a you know um guttural kind of reaction um so yeah I love that one I know I'm forgetting a lot of them but I just have a question which was your favorite film to write a review for oh that's a great question um because I'm asking because I know you do so much research and prep in your reviews and so I know that also goes in that in addition to just watching the film right right yeah you know it's hard with Sundance this year because I literally like doubled my workload from the last time I was there so I um as you may have heard me say a couple times was really overwhelmed with the amount of writing I had to do and the time I had to do it but um I guess I would say uh the 40 year old version yeah because it was the references were so clear in it and you know looking up like sort of the history of black film um or Spike Lee's part of that because um, it was directly directly referencing She's Gotta Have It, the original movie. Um, and it was just like such a fun movie and covered so much terrain. Um, so that was fun to write. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the film? 
Yeah, 40-year-old version is a um, sort of satirical comedy about a playwright in New York City named Rada Blank, who's also the writer-director of the film. She plays a version, a fictionalized version of herself. And um, she uh, is sort of burnt out and tries to get her mojo back by becoming a rapper. So there's so much in the film, but it doesn't feel like it has no focus. It's kind of um, very impressive for like a first time director because like she covers so much ground in it but you don't feel swallowed up by it by the end it is a little bit too long but not that's probably the only thing I have to say about it that I was noticeable but um I was really impressed by it yeah that's interesting so you brought up time directed by Garrett Bradley Mm -hmm. and the 40 year old version directed by Rada Blank and both of them won directing awards right um which is awesome and yeah incredible and yeah I feel like kind of unprecedented at the festival yeah and actually it was three women all the directing awards were won by black women this year yeah, yeah who was the third um, one the, the main ones of the four the, yeah, yeah, yeah. of dramatic u.s dramatic u.s um documentary world dramatic world documentary um the world uh dramatic um, was cuties yes mm-hmm. the movie cuties mm-hmm. but that's not the name of the director i'm forgetting her, her name, name is but yeah my Muna, I don't, we can add it in. Yeah. She's Senegalese, French, um, I believe. I actually really didn't like cuties, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's cool. And, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, definitely cool to see all these, yeah, see these women represented, I mean, I mean you know, awarded these incredible prizes at the festival. Um, I thought that was just exciting especially like the Oscars happening two weeks later where it's like, that was a such a contrast, but (laughs) it's cool to see like, Oh, this, yeah, this work is being noticed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was, it really stood out to me because I believe Ava DuVernay was the first black woman to win like a directing award from Sundance. And that was in 2012. And um, so it's quite a leap, you know, and that was like, at a time when they weren't really focusing as much on inclusion as they seem to be now. So, um, yeah, I can't, I hope this means they get to make more work. I know the 40 year version has a deal at Netflix already. I don't, yes. and time I think already is being produced by New York times. I documentary. Think I saw that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so cool. and cuties is on Netflix. So everyone will get to see these films, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Can you also speak to, yeah, some of the themes or trends that you noticed at the festival? I think we kind of picked up on a couple of things, um, but wanted to hear your take um, and, and your experience with that. Yeah, well, I, th- I thought it was really interesting that they achieved gender parity in the directing um, competition, like for, I want to say for... Um, yeah, in directing across the festival, they had at least 50% women. I think it was a little higher than that, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> um, so that I felt like, you know, female-centered stories were some of the most talked about ones, like um, Emerald Fennell. Um, oh, yeah, Promising Young Woman. Right, yeah. I know her from Call the Midwife, which is my favorite show of life. Okay, good. <laughs> she plays a nurse in there called Patsy. Um <laughs> For all you uh, call the midwife fans yeah, this out is there, it becomes a call the midwife podcast. <laughs> Honestly, it's my mom's favorite show. <laughs> I think my mom's my, it too. <laughs> that's my TV watching energy is mom energy for sure. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. I didn't get to see that one, but I heard great things about it. Also, um, 
sometimes rarely often never always never rarely sometimes i think we've said all the combinations of the title (laughs) eliza Um, hitman yes you saw that one i did see that yeah and that was great that was really great i felt like i saw a lot of men in particular commenting on how great it was because i realized like a lot of men have no idea what that whole scenario was like in such detail yeah it's about a young woman crossing state lines to get an abortion in new york right yeah and she has to go through several hurdles um to get it because she's a minor minor and um they actually show her intake at planned parenthood that's where the title of the film comes from an intake form so um and they show the whole procedure i mean not the body parts of it but like focusing on the character's emotions and um I just think a lot of people don't know what that is. It's like a very clandestine experience, even as it's one that's so common among women. Um, so hopefully it'll be insightful for people. And I guess other trends. Well, I said this in the um, the Hollywood Reporter Critics Roundup of um, I really noticed that like a lot of the films that were like had all black or all Asian casts were just simple human stories that weren't about like civil rights or struggle or slavery and all those things are like worthy topics but they tend to be like what Hollywood allows black films to be about and so I feel like um you know I guess I would pinpoint it to like Moonlight ushered in like this whole new era of films like black films that are doing something more nuanced and really focusing on the humanity of the characters um without denying the identity but like not focusing solely on that so i felt like minari was one of those um uh miss juneteenth by um channing godfrey peoples was one of those i thought that was great that was really that also had a big theme of black hair in that movie too i was like okay i see I see a theme developing. Yeah, I think that one just got bought as well. Did it? Yeah. I oh, just great. read that. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Okay. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and um, also there was a Moses, I think she was from Tanzania. Her name was Ekwa Masangi. Um, her film, uh, Farewell Amour, was about like this family where the father had left to, because he got a visa. And he was a cab driver in New York for like 15 years. And it took that long for him to get visas for them to come. And so they really like don't know anything about each other. Like they've changed dramatically. Um, And so it's about them like reuniting. And I thought that was beautiful film. Like visually, it was very beautiful. She did some really interesting things with the camera work. And um, the script was great. Of course, it had like, you know, dance offs in it, which is my personal favorite in any film. I feel every film should have a dance off in it. Um, at some point. Dropping some wisdom. <laughs> Taking personal notes. films that I like, they always have a dance off. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, there were like probably like seven, eight, nine, ten films like that that I could list off. Yeah, it's interesting you saying about what you were saying about the all black films or the all Asian cast films that that reminded me of a lot of interviews that Lulu Wong has done. She talks a lot about like how it's a specific yet universal um, theme. And I feel like that really resonated with me. Like the moments that of the films that I really remember um, were so specific in the world or story that they were telling, but like obviously they resonated within me. I think of this one film we saw, I Carry You With Me, and it was about this young gay couple in Mexico and one of them crosses over the border and and it was just like so moving and it was like, Oh, 
yeah, that's like the magic of storytelling. Like that's why we watch and experience all that. Um, yeah, that's not a question, but I just, I, that, that just reminded me of, yeah, kind of the experience watching a lot of the films at the festival. Yeah. I mean, I think even though it's, you know, not like an original thought, it's worth saying again and again, right. you know, <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> um, I think you can't say it enough really because people seem to forget it all the time. Completely. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Um, just curious what what were some of the weirder films that you saw that you were like what is what is up with this or I don't know I just feel like there's always like a scattering of it's Sundance so there's kind of like more there's some weird ones thrown in there there's some experimental ones and I know there's a reason for all of that um I'm just curious you know yeah what were your um, weird, weird takes well it's funny because before I went to the festival, like different people just messaged me in a variety of formats were like, I, I'm so jealous. I want to see nine days. And that wasn't a film I necessarily had paid attention to in the announcement, but like three different people messaged me about it. And I was like, okay, I guess I need to go see this movie. Um, and I actually like nine days. I mean, it's very esoteric and slow moving, but it's one of those rare movies where like the last sequence of it actually does bring everything together which like almost never happens um (laughs) it's usually like um (laughs) but and then and um winston duke's character and zazie beats character are integral in that sequence and they are so good together on the screen and just like it's just a beautiful performance um so yeah that was definitely weird though um it took it required patience um and Let's see. I didn't get to see Omniboat Fantasia, but that felt very weird. I don't know. I haven't heard anything about that one. I've heard a little bit about it. Oh, yeah. But I'm also curious. They basically bought a boat. It was like 15 different filmmakers, and they bought a boat and then shot a film on the boat. Yeah, the the description really didn't say much beyond that. Yeah, that's that's pretty much that. But I guess they like came to the festival with the film and for the offer to sell the boat. Did they bring the boat to Park City? <laughs> no. Drive it so. up and down Main Street. Okay. Well, I mean, I thought it was interesting because I feel like Miami filmmakers are having a moment um, where they're kind of establishing themselves in the indie scene, you know, um, like Lulu Wang is from Miami. Um, of course, Barry Jenkins is from Miami. Um, <laughs> Zola, right? Took place in Florida? Yeah, it was, I think it was in Tampa. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that, I would, that was why I was mainly interested in seeing like, plus Terrence, um, Nance is in it. I, I like his work a lot. Um, he's one of the 30 directors or whatever it was. <laughs> um, yeah, I, let's see, there's one other one that was very weird, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. Oh, well, weird in the best possible way, and we actually saw this one together. Yeah, we did. Kajillionaire. Kajillionaire. Shout oh, yeah. out to Miranda July. Yeah, I mean, such <laughs> a... 30 showing. <laughs> I'm, like, such a fan of hers. Like, she was the first filmmaker I saw who introduced me to the world of, like, indie art house film i remember as like a teenager watching me you and everyone we know and thinking wow i didn't know they made films like this you know um and it's so great to see her evolution like you know she made a pretty commercial film it still feels very much like her but it also feels like a wider audience would probably watch it um and of course the performances are really good um it's just like weird and wonderful and just makes you smile yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. I felt that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, one other kind of 
back end question, I guess. Um, if there are any like aspiring film critics out there, what would you like? How did you kind of find yourself at Sundance, like reviewing films for the Hollywood Reporter? Mm-hmm. And what would you recommend to aspiring film writers? Yeah, I think um, the important thing is to get clips in the beginning. So like even if you have, I don't recommend writing for free. I actually don't do that. But <laughs> but even if they only pay like $50, like do clips like that if that's all you can get at the beginning. Um, and write about the things you really like, especially if you're starting as a freelancer. That's one of the advantages. Like you can kind of create your own assignments. Um, I think the thing that probably helped me the most was the sort of secret underground Facebook groups that exist. So, you can, you know, like you can ask around about this. Um, but they're, you know, the binder groups on Facebook actually have a ton of really helpful information about how to connect with editors, who to email, the whole process. Um, and there's a great uh, book called, well, actually, it's not a book. But it was a class that I took called How to Pitch Like a Honey Badger. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tell us more. Um, which I guess a honey badger is known for its persistence. Um, <laughs> but the woman who teaches it is amazing. Her name's Julie. Um, and she um, has freelanced for years. Um, she has a book coming out. And um, she was really helpful in just kind of breaking down. But there's a ton of classes out there now of just the basics of freelancing. And I would say it's more possible than ever. Also, watch a lot of film, like watch a lot of film and know like what kind of films you're drawn to and be able to speak about those and write about those. Um, Because you have to have I mean, nobody's seen every film that exists, but like maybe A.O. Scott has. I don't know. But um, (laughs) but it's important to like know what your lane is and like really know it, you know, and dig into it. Yeah. And don't give up cause it's really hard and you get a lot of no's. Can I ask a fun question? Just like a, a early prediction. Do you think any of the films that you saw at Sundance might be in the Oscars race this next year? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, the Oscars race? I mean, who the hell knows? But in terms of like people watching those films and like them breaking out the way for the farewell did, for example, I think Minari definitely has that potential. I mean, and Steven Yun, because he has a following because he was on Walking Dead and, you know, he's pretty nice to look at. But he also is really good in that movie. And um doesn't hurt. Yeah, you know. The both things work together. Um, <laughs> um so I think I mean, especially now, you know, with like Parasite, even though those are wildly different films, um, they both happen to center around Korean families, but um, one in America, one in Korea. But um, I think there's much more of an opening for those kinds of films to do well now, just even in this past year. Um, I think that I really don't know how people are going to respond to Zola, but I'm predicting that... um, I don't think Miranda Delisle will go to the Oscars, but I think that she's going to break out in a new way in terms of like mm-hmm. more people really knowing who she is and people are going to like get interested in her that didn't know about her before. Yeah. If they don't already know about her and her Instagram videos with Margaret yeah. Quality. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. We have a whole other podcast. Yeah, we can, we can, let's that. have a debrief on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, on that note, yeah. um, always a joy chatting with you, Beandria, and hearing your thoughts. Could you let our listeners know where they can read your reviews and follow you on social media? Sure. Yeah, I link to most everything I write on Twitter, so that's the best place, and that's at Beandria.com, all spelled out. Love it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Next up is our interview with production designer Tracy Dishman. Tracy designed for Black Bear, which was directed by Lawrence Michael Levine and stars Aubrey Plaza. We loved getting to hear about how Tracy found her way into production design and what her process was like for designing Black Bear. Enjoy. So go ahead. Um, if you would introduce yourself, that'd be great. Hi, I'm Tracy Dishman. I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to you. So you are the production designer on Black Bear which is a film um, at the festival this year. So we just kind of wanted to start with um, a little background on the film, what it's about, and how you got involved. Okay. Um, the film is sort of a thriller slash experimental psychological relationship situation. Um, it's kind of probably noteworthy most in that it is two sort of vignettes within one feature. So your characters go through one experience in the first half of the movie, and then they sort of switch roles and designations in the second half of the movie. It's a totally different reality, but with similar costumes, same location, um, etc. So that's that. It premiered yesterday. It seems to be you know, being received well, which is exciting. And I got involved because one of the producers, Rick Bosner, I've worked with several times before. My first movie with him was Other People, which premiered at Sundance in 2017. And we've gone on to do other projects. So basically, whenever he calls, I know it's going to be something good and fun. And he did not fail me this time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little about a little bit about your role in the film like what did that involve um, for you how did you start the process and if you could talk a little bit about the two different um, sections of the film and the, how that influenced the production design sure so um, my role was you know I, I met with Larry, our director, writer, and um, the location had been chosen by the time I was brought on, but um, at first it needed to be sort of like gutted and curated for what made sense for our characters. This is like a young couple who um, were sort of acquiring a family location that they were sort of camping out at and maybe inviting other friends or creatives out to like have, you know, some inspiration in in the woods. So the first thing that I did was look up the Adirondack State Park because I had never shot in New York. I am not really a wilderness person. Um, black flies, ticks, like, Ooh. right? <laughs> oh, no. I know, I know. Like, it's a whole thing. So, um, so that, and then, you know, looking into the Hudson Valley crew, like who was available. Um, I did bring out actually a decorator who I had worked with in Los Angeles, but had recently moved to Montana and because she's like a, a hunter and a wilderness person. And when I contacted her about black bear, she was like, Oh, I just passed my, um, bear identification course. So I was like, you are, 
you're the one. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of it is having the right people around you, especially if you're going to be like it, like we were in the middle of nowhere, living together for five weeks. It's intense. And so like aesthetically, you want the right people, but also personality-wise, it's like you know, that goes a long way. So, um, crewing up, uh, looking at the location, working with nature, like that really dominated our palette and then infusing kind of what made sense for our characters. And then to your point about the first half and the second half of the film, um, giving, you know, using our elements in different ways, like tracking that of, um, so that it's very subtle, but that it's disorienting and you're kind of like, well, which is the real one and which is the imagined one and is anything real or is it all in her head or whatever. And then working closely with our DP and our costume designer so that it all is cohesive and subtle and nuanced and beautiful. Could you give a specific example of one of those elements and how like specifically you went about creating that shift to make us feel like, is it reality? Is it dream? Yeah, sure. So, um, we, the costume designer, Ali Pierce and I, um, we wanted to use sort of like the red, purple, fuchsia version of a color to contrast. It's predominantly red, but it sort of had like, you know, we had leeway within that of, um, which female character was the dominant character in which vignette and dedicating that color to her in sort of subtle ways and letting it stand off the backdrop of nature because it's so green and brown and muted and just like falling away that um, it was in the personal effects or like within their room just having those pops that made it so like in this one piece where um, Aubrey's writing you know her chair is red right or her swimsuit's red or whatever that's just to sort of like anchor the um, the focus onto whichever character is dominating whichever part of the movie Interesting. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, yeah, so you spoke a little bit about researching the state park, uh, etc. But how does, I'm curious to dig in more to the collaboration with the, the director and how that starts. And then like, what do you do after that initial conversation? How do you kind of like build out this world? Like what tools do you use to then communicate what you're thinking? Sure. So um, he had a list of movies that he was inspired by. So um, just, you know, looking into that, I pull reference, I do a breakdown of the script, and then I sort of send mood boards of this is what I'm thinking, right? And then we go back and forth over that and, you know, like, yes, absolutely this, or, you know, less of that, whatever it may be. Um... And for this particular project, you know, it was really personal for Larry. And he wrote it. He was directing it. He was really uh, creatively invested and aesthetically invested and had a clear vision. And so this wasn't so much a project where I reinvented the wheel. It was more about executing his vision and being really sensitive to to what was important for you know what I mean like extracting out of his brain what's important to him and focusing on that and then the things that were not important to him not making it my personal mission to like you know <laughs> take on that battle right like let's it was it was a very tight production very challenging no wi-fi no cell service no joke 
joke. Like living in the woods, literally using landlines and cabins to call each other. Like, hey, call got pushed, you know, or leaving notes. Meet me at the bridge at 1130. I want to go over tomorrow. I mean, it was it was back to basics. And so um you know, really triaging what what were the important elements that we needed that moved the story forward and that was um, you know essential basically this was a film of what was essential <laughs> we didn't have extras you know we just didn't have the resources for that so it was sort of like identifying the key elements and, and nailing those and that was a lot of like driving around to weird little places in lake communities and knocking on doors and hey can we borrow this chair and going into the other cabins that the crew is staying in and stealing stuff out of their cabins that they didn't know about and then returning it yeah because you know it's like the beauty of being in the middle of of nowhere like that is that you have such a such an abundant palette and you have no resources right because you're in the middle of nowhere so working with that yeah how did those limited resources affect your creative experience it sounds like that would be mm. like did it change it, it that was much? Actually, or? really nice. Okay, so the first few days, um, I mean, m- meltdowns across the board. Like we have got to get Wi-Fi in here. We have got to find cell service. Like we cannot work without these tools, right? And then by day three, when you're like, okay, we're not getting Wi-Fi, and if you literally go over that hill and stand by that log, you get two bars. <laughs> and in the mornings, there would be like a, a subtle queue of people in their pajamas waiting to go check their, you know, or there was a bridge that once you crossed it, your phone would just blow up with, every, you know, all that, whatever. So um, one is just acceptance of the, rea- like, this is our reality, right? So with what we have, how are we going to make it work? Um, and that was super wonderful and liberating. Like once you stop fighting what you think you need and you start utilizing what you have, it, um, it, 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 it affects your creative process so much. And since this is a story about a couple who has left New York to come be in the woods, to have their baby and to like live sort of a more authentic, creative, simple life, it was like that we were actually doing that so it I mean it was just like relaying what our experience was right yeah it seems like so much of the place got infused into the film a hundred percent yeah yeah and that's something you couldn't you just couldn't do you know if you didn't have that nature right there. No, that's true. And also just like slowing down our own creative, you know, like slowing down to like kind of, well, what would these people do if they're not on their phone? And I can actually see it because I'm not on my phone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just want to know about your Sundance experience this year and prior years and just what the festival means to you and what it means to be here. Um, well, it's a privilege, right? And it's an honor and it's a hassle (laughs) and it's expensive and I love it and I hate it. And, um, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. It's like, it's not a casual thing at all. And so, um, it is always, you know, it's always nice to have your work, uh, 
celebrated, right, and honored. And then it's also part of the job to, like, show up for that celebration and um, freeze and stand in lines and, like, uh, you know, all of that. But I think... um, you know, Sundance is just, it's its just a special little microcosm, and it is kind of a familial thing. Like, one of the things is seeing people who I've seen here before, that it's like, I probably, I only see them here. Yeah. You know what I mean? That thing, or like, oh, I'm going to Atticus to get coffee. <laughs> uh, you know, and... Shouts out to Atticus. <laughs> totally shouts out. I, I was there oh, last night. So yes, yeah, yes. They were in their um, space-themed outfits, right? I tried to find out what today was going to be, but they wouldn't tell me. They were like, you have to come in to see. So I haven't been there yet. Um, But yeah, like, there's something familial about it, not only in the location, because it's so small and intimate. You, like, get the lay of the land very quickly, but then also in the familiar faces, because people are coming in from all over, that it's it's nice to have a hub, you know, an annual get-together. Yeah. I'm curious, um, I just want to know how you got into production design and what keeps you inspired to keep working. So how long do we talk? <laughs> you want the short version or the long version? Whatever you'd like to I, share. Um, I, you know, I had a, like a weird rambling path into it. I did not know that this was a job, you know. And um, in around 2005, I found myself in L.A. I moved there on a whim and had friends who were in the film community and they were like go work on this short and so I went and I worked on this short and then I met someone who needed an assistant and then I did a movie and then that movie went union and then I became a department head and then I was like oh this was I was a prop master and then I saw what the set decorator was doing and I was like oh I actually want to do that so I did that for a while and then I saw what the designer was doing and I was like no actually I want to do that Um, And that is how I, you know, and actually what happened was I was a decorator for a actor, writer, creator duo, um, Lennon Parham and Jessica St. Clair, and I had decorated for them for a couple of shows, and um, on season two of Playing House, which was for USA, um, the designer wasn't available, and they were like, you know, Dish, you should just bump up, and I was like, that's so cute, but it's a different union, it's a whole other thing, like, I didn't go to school, and they were like, yeah, but no, you can do it. We're just going to write the union. And they wrote the union, and they were like, this person has prior knowledge, um, and we want to grandfather her in, and that is how I became a designer. And so, like, the process of hiring women, supporting women, lifting as you rise, like, it is not only essential to my personal story, but it sort of is how I approach my career with my own crew. Yeah. Wow. That's what happened. That's such a great story. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, right? Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Do you have any advice for um, younger people who are interested in becoming a production designer and specifically women? Yeah reach out, you know, hit people. It's like those excruciating cold emails and cold calls and you like send out a hundred and one responds. Like it's just part of the process. It, it, it's some, it's sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly for people like you, there's no set trajectory for this career. It's, um, 
you know, it's a combination of knowing what you want to do, having the skill set to execute it, being a personality that people want to be around and want to hire, and then being in the right place at the right time. And that last element is the one that is elusive that, like, you just don't have any control over. But if you stick with it, the chances, the, the odds, you know are forever in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great (laughs) note to end on. Here for that. Um, Thanks so much for chatting with us, Tracy. Oh my gosh, you guys. I love it. Thanks for having me. Of course. Enjoy the rest of your festival. You too. Thanks. And finally, we interview Jess Engel, founder of the production company Crimes of Curiosity, and Miriam Ashar from Phi Center in Montreal, who produced the new frontier mixed reality experience called Breathe, which uses body movement, gesture, and breath to immerse participants in the story of air. Elise and I actually had the chance to experience the project firsthand. Enjoy. Bonjour, my name is Miriam Achard. I'm a Chief New Media Partnership and PR at the Phi Center in Montreal. Hello, I am Jess Engel. I am the founder and executive producer at Crimes of Curiosity, which is my production company based in LA. And uh, I'm, I'm a producer on Breathe. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> yes. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about your project, Breathe, that uh, brought you to the festival this year? So I met uh, Diego Galafasi, who is the director of the project. I met him actually one year ago at Sundance, at uh, the Sundance Talent Forums. And um, he told me about this project. And essentially, it uses Magic Leap technology, um, which is an augmented reality headset, to, and a biometric sensor that you put around your uh, like rib cage. Uh, and it allows you to visualize your breath. So in the experience, you breathe, and you first start off, you know, you breathe, you get to visualize your breath, you breathe with other people, and it's all about making the invisible visible and reconnecting us with the rest of the living world um, through this invisible sea of air. And um, it, we have a beautiful installation, thanks to the Phi Center, who's our co-producer um, on this project. And can you tell us a little bit about how you started developing this project, like how the idea came about, and then the process with the technology to develop the project? Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll start, like, when we got on board, when Phi got on board, is actually, um, I was in Copenhagen for CPH Docs last year in March, and Jess was there, and Diego was there, and Jess told me, ah, oh, there's this artist I really want you to meet, uh, he has an amazing project, and Diego had um, a prototype uh, then, uh, and I tried it and I was really very impressed with what I've seen and even though it was like an early prototype so when I I came back to Montreal I spoke with the team there and I was like we were looking into um, starting an artist residency and I told the team this might be the, like a very uh, like a great fit for us to start our residency. So Diego came to Montreal. He met with the team. Jess came, and um, that's how we started to work together. Um, and we've been working on on that since last summer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in terms of the technology part of it, um, it's we've it's been a tech a technological feat I would say um, for many reasons I mean Magic Leap is a very new headset and technology it's only been around for a couple years so even working with developers who are versed in VR it doesn't mean that they necessarily can work with um, 
Magic Leap technology. It's a slightly different system. And, you know, ultimately we had to build teams internationally. You know, Phi Center, we uh, ended up working with Nova Lab, which is a studio and based in Paris. And then we also, uh, our key collaborator on this is Steve Mangiat, who worked at Magic Leap for five years. And he came and he really brought to life a lot of the visuals. But it's the first... Um, Magic Leap experience to incorporate a biometric sensor into it and also it's a multiplayer experience so uh, at least four people can do it at once and you really and that I mean we only got that bit of it working just a few weeks ago oh wow so we really a few days maybe (laughs) so we were really pushing the limits um, on a technological front and can you tell us a little bit about there was also the third the belt element so what was that element doing yes so there's many different elements (laughs) when you do the experience so you first um, there's the headset itself that you put on there's the sensor and then the belt that you're wearing is actually Actually, to the side, um, there's a it's, it's it's the computer. Yeah, so it's like powering the headset. Wow. Yes, in a in a kind of portable format. I guess what's interesting about the experience, which feels unique, I guess, is the biometrics sensor yes. and the fact that it is a communal yes. experience as well. Yes. Can you talk about how those elements kind of contribute to what the team was trying to communicate to the people yes. experiencing it? Well, maybe what I, I, I'd like to say here is that um, I've been trying magically experiences in the past and like I was I think it was in Venice where we I was in a room with somebody else that was doing an, an ex, like the same experience as me but we were not connected so the presence of the other person was really disruptive for me and when when we started to speak with Diego and when you know like it was clear that it, it needed to be a multi-user experience I think this is like this makes this, the piece very, very, very strong. And the fact that you also can interact with each other and that you can touch, like, the, let's say we do it together, then it can touch your breath. It's really, really powerful. Yeah. And it was, you know, that was also one of the hardest parts to actually build and incorporate. And even at the end of this year, we had a moment where we were like, maybe we need to cut the multiplayer because it's, it's just, it's so hard. But... We, Diego and the team were just really adamant like we need to keep pushing on this because it's such a critical element to the experience and, and same with the sensor you know being able to it's not just seeing breath but as you breathe, you're see the the air actually changes visually. It changes color. It changes form. So you're really taking like it, it creates that one to one connection, um, which was something that was super important to him and to the team that we wanted to create. I guess I'm just curious overall, what keeps you inspired in this this field in this space of VR AR, um, and what yeah keeps you wanting to like work and create in this in this place I mean if for us for yeah. me for Phi um, it's we really like I think we are only at the beginning of something um, like it's early days even though you know like um, let's virtual reality has been a bit talk of the town let's say for the last four years or so but augmented reality virtual reality mixed reality I strongly feel that we are really at the beginning of something that's going to be big and to be part of this community um, to to have a say also on what's coming is um, yeah I think it's 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 what 
that's why we do it because it's so we're so enthusiastic about it yeah it's a good question and one that I've honestly been asking myself a lot recently because it's so hard to it's it's so hard you know you're really like we're on the quote cutting edge and really we are I mean we have to come to the festival early we have to bring equipment we have to test the equipment we have to build installations you know we have to create you're not just making something but you're making something with tech that is so new and so it's It's such a, you know, you're you're really kind of working in the unknown and and also to create something that you also know not everyone's going to be able to see, right? And so there's a distribution uh, gap right now. But the reason that I'm I continue to stay that I guess be pulled into the space is because, as Miriam said, the community is incredible. Like the artists and the people who are working with tech is so inspiring and you really create something that I mean has never existed before and that is so special and it's funny because um, on the other project I'm working on my co-producer on it it's her first VR project and the whole time she's like this is crazy I can't believe you do this like what and then she finally we had we finally had a moment where she she had uh, like a random you know audience a random person um, do the experience and like love it And she now she's like, I love VR. And there, cause, and because it, it's true, when you actually get people inside of it and you create an experience for people and they, it really resonates, it's, there's, it's such an incredible feeling, you know? So I think it's, it's constantly being driven by that as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's also about telling stories, yeah. but telling stories in a different way, like with different tools, and it's exciting. Yeah. It's really exciting. Yeah. 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 And what do you hope audiences at this festival will take away from this project? And does the project have a life beyond the festival, or what are you imagining for its future? I mean, what one of the things I love about this is that it does create this very meditative space for people to just you know there's no the audience you know if you're doing it you're not speaking you're really kind of like it slows you down in a way because you really have to connect with your breath and you're interacting with it and I think just giving people that moment especially in the craziness of this festival is is something really special and you know what we talk about too is like the piece has this sort of climate change or climate awareness component but it's not overtly political it's really about you know connecting everybody is connected everything every living thing is connected by our breathing and that is just a really profound thing to remind people and so you know after Sundance we're going to do an exhibition at the Phi Center um, and then we're also hoping to bring it to other museums and gallery spaces cultural institutions and also climate summits internationally which is a big thing you know we're talking with the Nobel Prize Summit um, we've talked about we're talking about um, World Economic Forum they have like this piece could have been in Davos for instance you know like so that type of of international conferences where you have like thousands of people coming from different countries um, being um, being yeah create awareness um, I think it's yeah um, economic World Economic Forum is a very good partner I think yeah And Miriam, can you tell us a little bit more about the Phi Center? Yeah. So, so the Phi Center is a space uh, that's been open 
eight years ago. Uh, the founder and director, her name is Phoebe Greenberg. Uh, she's a visionary. Um, so it's basically a multidisciplinary art center where we do a lot. We do concerts, we do traditional film screenings, we do a lot of conferences and talks, but our main um, focus is really to have uh, exhibitions, experiences, installations that are at the intersection between art and technologies. Um, so, and it's not, you know, like we, when we have a big exhibition, for instance, like it's around for four months. So we, we, we want to give uh, the opportunity to our public to come and experience VR, AR, MR, uh, immersive theater. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and I just want to say one thing that I love about the FI is... Uh, as I mentioned, distribution for these pieces, especially when their installation base is so limited, and there isn't, there isn't, there aren't museums or art-focused cultural institutions that um, whose primary focus is to showcase AR, VR, AI, you know, artwork. And that's actually what the FI is about. And I always say, because the FI is based in Montreal, which is amazing, but I'm also like, can the FI exist in LA and New York and everywhere? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, there's so much, there's so many incredible things that artists are doing with this work. And it, there's not many places for this work to really be seen. So I think the FI is definitely pioneering that form of distribution for it. Can you guys tell us um, how Zazie Beats got attached oh, yeah. to this project? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, we were, we knew we wanted a voice for the piece and a female voice specifically because it has um, like kind of a Mother Earth type of tone to it and we I mean I've I've been a fan of hers for a while she's on Atlanta she's in Joker she's just so and she's also very um she's an activist herself and like when she believes in certain causes and projects and missions she wants to attach herself to it so it was actually through um CAA the agency you know we we're talking to the voiceover person and she um this was one of the people that we talked about and we reached out to her and you know we don't have a big budget on this project and she just she just believed in the vision for it and it's it's really exciting and she's actually at Sundance this year with the film so she's going to be able to experience the piece oh, and oh, cool. yeah it's really cool so we, we feel very lucky awesome thank you guys so much for joining us today we really love talking to you and we hope you enjoy the rest of your festival thank, thank you guys thank you I appreciate it you can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 